0: What are the critical differences between the collapse of the American empire and the collapse of the Soviet empire? Was the collapse set off by outside forces or dynamics internal to the American system? Why have the elites within the US deteriorated almost to the point in foreign affairs of ignorance and incompetence? Is the state of the federation set towards a racial or civil war within the country? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we continue our previous conversation on the very evident decline of the U.S. Empire by examining elements both abroad and within the nation, and how they are showing few prospects for any immediate rescue from a horrifying fate. Our guest for the show is an insightful military analyst and blogger, and the author of a new book discussing the collapse of the U.S. Empire. His name is Andrei Martyanov. On this week's program, The Collapse of America, Part 2, Distant Early Warning Signs of Uncle Sam's Demise. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 26th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojibwe, Dene, and Dakota, birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The Winter Shield is an annual military event, which is why its occurrence in 2021 was expected by all experts in geopolitics and military matters. However, this year, the strength of the event seems to stand out even more. It is known that NATO has been concerned with making its operations in Eastern Europe, especially in the Baltics, more and more severe, significantly increasing the level of aggressiveness in its conduct in the region. With that, there is an effort for the exercises to show progressively more strength. While on previous occasions the maneuvers in Latvia did not receive much attention due to the large number of NATO simultaneous tests in the region, this year the event tends to be emphasized by the experts both due to its long duration, two weeks, and for its intensity. That comes from the article NATO Conducting Provocative Drills in Latvia by Lucas Leros de Almida posted November 24th, originally published at Infobricks. His letter, published in The Lancet's November 20th edition, highlights, quote, increasing evidence that vaccinated individuals continue to have a relevant role in transmission, unquote, of the virus. And therefore, the idea that, quote, the unvaccinated threaten the vaccinated, unquote, is far too simple. In the U.S., a total of 10,262 COVID-19 cases were reported in vaccinated people by April 30, 2021, of whom 2,725, or 26.6%, were asymptomatic, 995, or 9.7%, were hospitalized, and 160, or 1.6%, died, Kampf explained. In Germany, 55.4% of symptomatic COVID-19 cases in patients aged 60 years or older were in fully vaccinated individuals, and this proportion is increasing each week. Historically, both the USA and Germany have engendered negative experiences by stigmatizing parts of the population for their skin color or religion, Kampf concluded. I call on high-level officials and scientists to stop the inappropriate stigmatization of unvaccinated people who include our patients, colleagues, and other fellow citizens and to put extra effort into bringing society together. That comes from the article, Establishment Journal, The Lancet, publishes rare dissenting voice on COVID-19 vaccines by Calvin Freeberger posted November 24th, originally published at LifeSite News. The Australian Army has begun forcibly removing residents in the Northern Territories to the Howard Springs Quarantine Camp, located in Darwin, after nine new COVID-19 cases were identified in the community of Binjari. The move comes after hard lockdowns were instituted in the communities of both Binjari and nearby Rockhole on Saturday night. Northern Territory Chief Minister Michael Gunner announced today that the, quote, residents of Binjari and Rockhole no longer have the five reasons to leave their homes, unquote. The five allowable reasons to avoid lockdown that he referred to are buying food and supplies, exercising for up to two hours, care or caregiving, work or education. That comes from the article Breaking. Australian Army Begins Transferring Contacts of COVID-19 Positive Cases to Quarantine Camps by Patricia Herity, posted November 24th, originally published in the Exposé. In a paper for the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, Wame and his co-authors conclude, quote, There is no evidence that COVID-19 mortality data is less accurately reported in Africa than elsewhere. While the true picture of infections and mortality in the continent has yet to fully emerge, the quality of data for other diseases, such as HIV-AIDS, indicates that Africa has the capacity to collect and report valid disease surveillance data. In any case, the World Health Organization reports that COVID deaths in Africa make up only 2.9% of COVID deaths worldwide, while Africa's population is 16% of the global total. Africa's COVID total could double or triple, and Africa would still be faring far better than Europe and the Americas. That comes from the article, with low vaccination rates, Africa's COVID deaths remain far below Europe and the U.S. By Ryan McMecken posted November 24th, originally published in Mies Wire. Russia sees U.S. strategic bombers' intensified activity in close proximity to its borders, Russia's Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said on Tuesday. We are witnessing a considerable increase in the U.S. strategic bombers' activity near the Russian borders. Over the past month, they conducted about 30 flights to the border's of the Russian Federation, or 2.5 times more compared to the same period of last year, Russia's defense chief said during talks with his Chinese counterpart, Wei fing As the Russian defense minister stressed, quote, This month, in the course of the U.S. Strategic Command's global thunder exercise, 10 strategic bombers practiced employing nuclear weapons against Russia actually simultaneously from the western and eastern directions, The minimal distance from our state border was 20 kilometers, Shogu pointed out. That comes from the article, 30 flights, some only 12 miles away, U.S. bombers practiced nuclear attacks on Russia by Rick Rosoff, posted November 24th, originally published in Antebellum. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour. The U.S. is well on course for the end of its empire. I mean, other empires have collapsed before, but this time an empire armed with nuclear weapons has the ability to destroy all life on this planet, branding the U.S. as a, a truly angry loser. But this week, uh, we'll, we'll continue our conversation from last week, uh, this time with the incomparable Andrei Martyanov. According to the popular journalist Pepe Escobar, Andrei Martyanov is arguably the most, uh, the foremost military analyst in the Russian sphere. He was born in Baku, USSR, in 1963. He graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy and served as an officer on the ships and staff position of Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in the events in the Caucasus which led to the collapse of the Soviet Union in mid 1990s he moved to the United States where he currently works as laboratory director in a commercial aerospace group he is a frequent blogger on the US Naval Institute blog he's also the author of losing military supremacy the real revolution in military affairs and earlier this year, the final entry in this trilogy, Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse, which is essentially going to be our our focus this hour. Mr. Marchionov joins me via Zoom. It's a pleasure to finally meet you, Mr. Marchionov. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, it must have been a little difficult for you to, to get up and leave the former Soviet Union back in, the, in the, the early to mid 90s, was that departure an act of necessity or, or an opportunity you couldn't turn down?
1: Both, I would say. Uh, but um, you should remember the fact that we were originally, my family originally is from Azerbaijan. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, basically we became people without the state. Because uh, uh, there was a great deal of um, exodus by ethnic Russians from the republics of Caucasus, Armenia, Georgia, but especially uh, Azerbaijan, because Azerbaijan had the largest share of Russian and Armenian and Jewish populations. So, few Russians today remain in Azerbaijan, majority of them, uh, some moved to Russia. We moved to Russia and we couldn't find, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, any place to really live uh, and have a proper job. And uh, it's no secret that Russia of 1990s was basically a rolling catastrophe. It was demographic catastrophe, it was economic catastrophe. So when the opportunity presented itself, we simply just decided to be in the United States and uh, we moved in here, decided to stay here in mid-90s, and here we are.
0: Yeah, I I guess back then the United States had a real positive uh, glow to it or something like that, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's no denial of the fact that uh, uh, United States uh, in 90s was at the pinnacle of its both real and and perceived uh, greatness. And, uh, there were things of which, in our particular case, were of the great concern in Russia and which we found in the United States. It's security. Because for all intents and purposes, uh, what was happening in the former Soviet Union in 1990s was a war, basically. Uh, you know, let, let's put it this way. Warm civil war. Not hot, but warm.
0: Mm. You know, there's a, a big difference between the America we see on TV or in the movies and the America being lived every day by its inhabitants, okay? I mean, the news and the lifestyle programs and so on, uh, they only register maybe, I would say, maybe the top 10% of Americans. I mean, when you came to America, only knowing the, the, the media samples, what, what shocked you most about the fiction versus the reality of life in in the United States?
1: Um, I wouldn't lie. It was a very pleasant surprise, actually, initially. Okay. Especially when one considers the background of where we were basically escaping from uh, and the rubble of the Soviet uh, Union. It it was a horrendous uh, thing in every single respect, be it security, economy, uh, what have you and United States produced a very pleasant impression. And uh, not to mention the fact that it looked at that time, and actually I write it in my book, in the last book, which uh, you already introduced. It was the fact that we could easily see their material wealth, and there was a great deal of security. And I wouldn't lie, great deal of liberty too, you know, until, of, of course, things started to go downhill, which they probably started, I would say, uh, their turning point was the 1999 uh, Yugoslavia, and bombing of Yugoslavia. This is when, for the first time, we really took in the uh, serious change, which we also observed throughout the 90s while living in the United States, and it wasn't positive change.
0: Mm. Okay, well... Yeah, so you know as you're witnessing it I noticed you say in your book that the collapse of America is something only your fellow Russians can relate to you know part part of a giant superpower that, that came tumbling down uh, and I mean the Soviet Union were the former Soviet Union was ravaged in the 1990s with that experience in mind how was the decline of the u.s fundamentally different from uh well, like how, 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 what form, I guess I would say, did it take that was different from the, Russia?
1: Well, one of uh, dramatic difference uh, is one of, there are several of them which are really important, but the number one, I would say, unlike the United States, Soviet Union was truly multicultural. Out of the population of 330 million people in the Soviet Union at approximately 1990, 1991, half of them were people of radically non-Slavic origin. And they ranged widely from such ethnicities and cultures as Baltic states to Middle Asian countries what is nowadays known uh, as, uh, as Stans, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, you name it. And of course, there was a Caucasus. So basically, uh, the uh, national policy of the Communist Party, it was a good one, let's put it this way. I'm not going to discuss it, you know, all, all ins and outs of it, but definitely it was very difficult to maintain that type of the empire, which it was an empire. It was a Russian empire. Soviet Union was essentially another iteration of the Russian empire. And once the center, the Moscow, caved in, that was it. You couldn't hold it together. And especially against the background of the economic uh, crisis, dramatically inspired by Gorbachev's incompetent policies. So that was it. And countries simply disintegrated. Some of this dis- disintegration was uh, uh, very violent. And, um, but in the United States, while the United States is also is a multicultural uh, country, uh, the uh, political credo is not a good unifying uh, uh, feature. But the United States, unlike the Soviet Union, truly bankrupted itself from the uh, expeditionary warfare by the expeditionary expeditionary warfare. Uh, A very serious misconception uh, exists today, also promoted by Gorbachev to justify his failure as a human and as a state leader, uh, was that Soviet Union spent itself on the, uh, you know, and bankrupted itself by the military expenditure, which is not true. Actually, forgive (laughs) me, so, and um, in this particular case, uh, So these people will continue to call. And in this case, uh, um, their pattern, so to speak, is very different. I'll just give you one example. Some people love to talk about that Afghanistan somehow bankrupted the Soviet Union. It did not. Neither Afghanistan played a, a crucial role in the disintegration of the Soviet Union. It is a popular myth perpetuated in the West for a number of ideological reasons. And it's gonna be perpetuated even more, especially against the background of basically the uh, collapse of the U.S. operations in Afghanistan recently, including those uh, uh, dramatic uh, uh, videos uh, from um, Kabul and escape of the U.S. military and U.S. civilian personnel from there. But United States, was in war non-stop practically all of its history and this war was a very expensive expeditionary warfare Mm -hmm. and that's the feature which uh, does not entirely apply to the soviet union soviet union didn't go bankrupt because of the military expenditure Mm -hmm. it was primarily multicultural nature
0: you uh there, there were a number of, um, I mean, you said that the, the, the collapse essentially started uh, or, or maybe gained a certain level of momentum at, at the, toward the end of the 90s around the, that uh, the Yugoslav war. But I mean, there were certain sorts of tethers that came out that saying, well, here's a bit of an issue. For example, I, I think that in Vietnam, there was a, a huge, uh, that that may have been a, a beginning of the, uh, the collapse. I mean, President Nixon delinking the U.S. dollar to gold? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It was a long, protracted process. And as any process of this nature, it has the exponential nature. It starts fairly slow. And then things begin to accumulate, aggregate, and then they take the form of the snowball avalanche, if you if you want. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. But the... Together with, uh, uh, apart from Nixon's uh, de- uh, decoupling the United States from the gold standard, uh, this famous uh, Congress resolution for number 4444, uh, 2000, the last days of Clinton's administration, and basically admission of China to a World Trade Organization, mm-hmm. and given the essentially the green light for the accelerated deindustrialization of the United States. I speak about this in my book uh, in depth. Mm.
0: Yeah, well, there was, I mean, I imagine that uh, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I, I, I kind of get the sense that the United States kind of had a, a party of sorts and, and actually increased even more of the, the spending on uh, the wars of NATO and so on. And I, I think the, another aspect, and, and you, you tell me how fundamental this was, but the, the aspect to which their, uh, their, their whole capacity to produce uh as a producer, you know kind of took the wayside in favor of financial the financialization of the economy you know and, and so I, I'm a, I'm just wondering if if, if I could get a, an assessment of, of which of those things or, or, or something else were maybe the, the dominant card that uh, sealed the, the the collapse of, of the of the uh, the United States ultimately
1: Yes, the industrialization and the loss of the capacity to produce is, is key here Uh, obviously it's not just the only factor it is always a combination of factor it's never two-dimensional but american day industrialization is absolutely unique in the in the world's history and uh i know of no country which on its own volition would give up what defines the power of the nation and is the foundation for its security it's the productive capacity Mm. and uh basically the situation today with china which everybody in united states political loves to talk about how china is this and that and uh you know is the uh, threat to the american democracy you know and quote unquote but the point is united states was the one who gave china this power basically you know It literally massively shipped its industries, uh, you know, uh, uh, abroad, China being the main recipient uh, of this, uh, uh, basically, removal of the manufacturing capacity. And I can only guess what Chinese uh, 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 leaders at that time would think. They would would probably ask themselves, pinch me if I am dreaming, you know, because you would see there... United States between 1940s and 1970s, essentially, enjoyed the uh, reputation for the production powerhouse of the, of the world. And guess where we are today? Mm-hmm. And uh, as much as many people uh, deplore or abhor Karl Marx, not that he was correct on many things, but one thing he was correct when he de- defined labor as the historic category. Because it is one thing to push their uh, papers somewhere; totally another when people have their uh, purpose and meaning of their life, and they can go out and say, "Hey, you see this? That's the airplane I made. Hey, you see this car? That's what I made. You see this refrigerator? I worked on this, you know, manufacturing floor which makes them. Mm-hmm. So and." Uh, That's the issue. It's a huge issue. It's not just economic. It is uh, basically issue of the moral and psychological one. Mm -hmm. And that reflects also right now on the demographics and a famous study, which uh, I believe, what, it came out 2015 when they suddenly noticed, oh my goodness, we have the uh, white middle class, working class dying out. Of course it's dying out. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. You know, the, uh, so you, you get the sense that, uh, you know, as the, the, the United States is, is collapsing and the, I mean, I, I don't get the sense that they actually understand that it is, you know, so they're, they're basically doing things that just keep de- digging this hole even deeper. Uh, I, I'm wondering if, if all the attempts to, uh, to reconcile their situation, their plight, uh, is it fed by outside forces or are these all just these sort of internal contradictions within the foundation of america itself what do you think well it's both
1: but obviously um as um the as famous uh, uh anthropologist and psychologist branislav malinowski in 1940 noted that the war like charity starts at home And United States is not, it's too huge and too important in the 20th century uh, to be just the thing on on its own. It's definitely has both you know, uh, feedback uh, uh, from the outside world, but uh, their internal contradiction of the United States are multiple, from the multiculturalism to basically insane so-called left ideology of wokeism, which is Absolutely disaster. It's complete disaster. I remember Seattle, which I love even today. It was a safe, beautiful place. It looks like now, I don't know, it's it, it's not normal city anymore. It's the pretty much third world city. And uh, the same goes for Portland. You have the visual representation of this decline. You have the people, which is another thing. United States didn't produce a statesman or stateswoman real in ages. Most of what you have are the products of some political science and uh, uh, law, um, graduates from some uh, Ivy League universities, people who have zero life experiences, zero uh, understanding of pretty much any type of their uh, uh, control and command and management of the economy, They have zero understanding of war and warfare. And this is the generation of American uh, politicals today. These are the people who run the country. And as you can see yourself, they run it into the ground. And that's what it is. It's both a combination of the economic factors and obviously a combination of the cultural ones and human ones. You need to have a statesman, people of the scale who can emerge can you find FDR today somewhere? Or Eisenhower? No way. There are no people of this scale. Most of them have only one skill in life it's how to lie and to re elect themselves. That's it.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You just joined us, listeners. Um, We're listening to uh, uh, the uh, military, foremost military analyst, uh, Andre Martinov. Uh, He's uh, the uh, direct laboratory director of a commercial aerospace group in the United States. And uh, he's also a frequent blogger on US Naval Institute blog. So Andre, I'd like to uh, maybe turn your attention to, uh, I guess it's your chapter, Six, about the, the disintegration of, uh, as well of, of the elites. So you basically, they're promoted to power essentially based on their privilege as opposed to their competence. I mean, uh, like, why? I mean, is the conception that the U.S. is, is so dominant and, and supreme that it, it really doesn't matter who, who, the, who we elevate? I mean, can you explain that?
1: Well, part of it is that because this mythology of the United States, again, listen, uh, the United States is the only country in the world which loses its wars and then declares its forces being the finest fin- fighting force in the world. It's just like, really? But the point is, uh, the system of the production of the elites is completely broken. It's completely broken. There are a number of reasons why it is broken apart from the fact that yes, inevitably it gets corrupted. Inevitably it becomes the uh, nepotism or whom do you know? It happens everywhere. United States is not unique in this respect. What is unique in the United States uh, about that is the fact that United States thinks that it still doesn't have corruption, it does. The whole process of election and uh, 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 producing of the political elite is corrupt to the core just to give you an example, it's not the United States, albeit let, if you look at uh, today uh, at a Biden administration or for that matter, uh, uh, even Trump administration, basically what you see is a uh, it's majority with combination of people with degrees in political science and law, and those people decide economic and warfare uh, issues. This is ridiculous, honestly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not saying that United States uh, military necessarily uh, is uh, you know, the last, uh, so to speak, uh, vestige of the common sense, but at least people there, at least some of them there, they understand what modern uh, war is and what consequences it can bring about. You know? But just to give you an example, again, it's not the United States, UK recently, just recently, their uh, uh, minister of defense of the United Kingdom, was the guy who was uh, selling porcelain fireplaces. And he has degree in business. You cannot do that, you know? Especially today. This is not 19th century. At that time, anybody who had a half brain, they could understand basic principles of the ballistics and how fleets or armies will engage themselves because the technology was pretty primitive. Mathematics was complex behind it, even this primitive technology, but at least people could grasp it. Today, they have no clue, literally. This is not my opinion. This is opinion of uh, uh, um, General Latif, PhD in physics, 20 years in DARPA. It's his book, it's his words, and not only his, other people say that. Everything today, are uh, western political elites and most of the public know about war um, especially modern war is from the hollywood entertainment period we literally have people who grew up on the hollywood who uh, uh, live in make-believe world they think that they wish things and they happen after that they don't it doesn't work like this anymore everything is complex everything requires a very serious background in things other than political science which is the pseudo science anyway you know, but that's what it is. We have people who basically exist and are being produced by those elites.
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess it's like the, 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 the myths are more powerful than the illusion, hence the rise of the wrong. The it's Re- complete
1: delusion. It's complete delusion. They do not understand the forces which really move the world. They don't understand how ge- modern geopolitics or whatever we understand under modern geopolitics, because it's way beyond just geographic pivot of history as Mackinder wrote his famous article uh, uh, more than a hundred years ago. But uh, it's more complex than that. It doesn't work anymore like this. The inputs do not produce the outputs they used to.
0: Mm.
1: And Those people don't get it. They have no background for that.
0: Um, I'm going to just take it back a couple of chapters to your, uh, you talk about geoeconomics. I mean, you mentioned that the U.S., with all its advantages coming out of World War II today is losing ground in terms of influencing things economically. Okay. So, I mean, can you give our listeners just a couple of the more dramatic examples of of that solution, the situation?
1: Yes, I'll give you an example. Uh, For example, okay. for starters, we have to admit the fact that uh, geoeconomics is not really, a, again, it's not a science. Geoeconomics describes basically the same good old uh, uh, global economic com- uh, competition, which often results in the war. And uh, so there's nothing new there. But uh, to understand uh, where United States is today, you can look at the numbers of the steel production, for example, which there is no modern civilization without steel, steel and iron. Well, uh, China, for once, produces about 12 and a half times more steel yearly than the United States. At this moment in 2021, Russia, whose population is more than two times smaller than the United States, Produces the same amount of steel as the United States. It's people sometimes don't understand how far the United States fell and until you begin to tell them that, for example, commercial shipbuilding in United States ex- barely exists. It barely registers in the tonnage against the such giants as, the, as China, as South Korea, and even Russia. Russia. Russia's current shipbuilding dwarfs that of the United States commercial ship building. Mm. so
0: that's just a couple of things mm. well,
1: and uh there you go <laughs> uh,
0: i think uh, one thing i also had to bring up with you is your chapter on energy because uh i know that the uh a lot of people believe and uh it's it's pretty clear that uh, the the war on terrorism uh, as it's called was was fundamentally about oil they went to the area of the world where energy was most accessible and they wanted to be able to control that right away. And uh, consequently, it didn't seem to work out very well. But uh, you, you, you seem to uh, you, you, you talk about how the uh, the unconventional res- energy resources are, are still intact, but we're only for so long and how the uh, it, it's going to be hard for the United States to maintain that momentum at very expensive oil when uh, you know, russia and china are supplying it at you know less uh, you know less involvement so i, I mean just could you talk about how i mean what you know what what their venture you know to, to control the area the energy and, and how it ultimately failed and, and even further contracted their 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 uh, supremacy
1: um for starters uh obviously their uh, main um both customer and supplier um, of the oil and recycling of the petrodollar are uh, Saudi Arabia and Gulf states for the United States. But of course, to control something like, let's let's admit the fact that Saudis, we might not like them, I certainly don't, and they are terrorist sponsoring state, but they still, the state, They have their own ideas about their own independence, and they will continue to maneuver as much as they can to get out of uh, United States influence. But uh, there is, I have to say one thing. Uh, United States has uh, a sufficient uh, supply of energy inside the United States. You just cannot get to it properly because obviously of the environmental uh, uh, groups, and basically what is called the left of the Democratic Party, uh, <clears throat> blocking this development. United States produces, uh, it's in the top three, China being the uh, number one, and Russia being number three, and United States being number two, in production of the, what is called the MTOE, it's, uh, um, it's the million-tons oil equivalents. United States still produces a lot. Produces a lot of energy. It's their uh, <clears throat> how to say it. It's their um, um, uh, spectrum or the uh, pattern of energy which United States produces, which makes it so difficult <clears throat> and the, it, dependent of the United States on the outside sources. Just uh, this last week, uh, Russia is send, have sent uh, uh, something like. 2.5 or 3.5 I'm not uh, 100% positive um, million, uh, uh, million barrels of the diesel fuel to the United States. At the request of Joe Biden, to ease the crisis and the price uh, 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 prices for the fuel on the East Coast primarily? So uh, it is really kind of fascinating to see the country which does have energy and can actually be energy independent, depending on how you build your energy policies. But the United States, I don't think so, is capable to get out of this conundrum between the declared uh, environmental policies and uh, basically its own needs to provide itself with the energy. So as you can see yourself... I just gave you an example. Russia is a sub- Russia, which United States sanctions left, right, whatever. You can look up news right now uh type into google or go to oil price and see how many million t- million barrels of diesel fuel not just any fuel diesel fuel which is the higher uh, level of the uh, uh processing russia is sending right now right this very moment to the united states to ease united states crisis and united states uh prices at the pump and what have you so it's uh i i Cannot see how United States can, uh, how to say, uh, moderate and develop proper energy policy right now. But then again, I'm not pretending to be the uh, energy expert, but the signs are all there. United States imports a lot of energy.
0: Okay. Um, I noticed that uh, you talked about the the ability of the the United States to keep up militarily in your uh, chapter on losing the arms race. And I, I know that you, know, you certainly mentioned things about the, uh, you know, the, the, the you know, they're not being able to keep up with the, the hypersonics of, of Russia and, and so on and, and so forth. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to go and read that. But one point I'd like to make that I didn't, I didn't see you bring it up is examples of, of U.S. losses, uh, in, in the field of the, the, the CIA, NED, uh, Soros-funded, fostered chaos, uh, known as the Colored Revolutions. I mean, it's fostered in countries like Ukraine and and, and Belarus and other loco- locations, you, where you see the scales tip in favor of, of state, the, the United States versus Russia or, or China. Um, so, so I'm wondering if you have a, a sense of whether these, uh, the, the colored, this sort of uh, you know CIA, you know covert operations, is, is this still at least alive in a well or, or, or is it also sort of falling by the wayside too? What, what do you think of that?
1: Um, it's disintegrating completely. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons saying I'm saying this is because for starters, uh, and this, is, this goes uh, through all my books, through all my writing, including on the, on the blog. Uh, they learned nothing. They, learned, they never knew what Soviet Union was, or what Russia is, and what is this all about. You have the whole uh, class of the freeloaders in the United States, uh, which uh, uh, operate on the basis of a credentialism, which are think tanks, And you have a huge number of, let's say, uh, of the Soviet and Russian dissidents and um, type of people who consult and speak on behalf of Russia and the United States. And doing so, they distorted the picture to such a degree that it's complete caricature. And CIA probably plays the same role here in uh, basically reinforcing this caricature. Are there some people who know the real score and the real uh, picture? Certainly are, uh, I'm, I'm positive, there they should be, you know. But for the most part, basically, United States and its elites never knew the world outside. They still don't. And again, this is not only my opinion. For starters, you can look up uh, Mr. PhD in history, Mr. Daniel Larison, former commenter and writer for the American Conservative. Now he works for Andrew Basevich in the Quincy Institute for the responsible statecraft. They literally, they don't have clue.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's my fault for not reading into your, your earlier work. But...
1: No, no, no. It's uh, No, I'm. Uh, there's nothing wrong with what you ask because it's a good question. It's a good question. Actually, it's probably the most important question which we're discussing so far in this discussion and uh, or this interview is the fact they literally don't know the subject they're trying to play with. Mm. If that's, you can see yourself what happened in Ukraine,
0: okay. it is
1: basically one huge, massive intelligence and geopolitical failure, mm. because they didn't know, they didn't recognize it, because they, they read, uh, late Mr. Brzezinski, who didn't know the subject he was writing about, is the fact they thought that Russia just needs Ukraine. Mm. They didn't follow the massive tectonic change in Russian attitudes toward Ukraine. And that Russians don't need Ukraine.
0: (laughs) (coughs) Yeah, yeah, we'll probably go back to Ukraine in a minute. I I wanted to ask you, though, about, uh, well, you mentioned in the later chapters a a disturbing turn in their domestic politics uh, of the United States. You state that in the post-Trump era, the the media overwhelmingly are are taking an anti-Trump position while, while ignoring Biden's failings, I mean, and, and creating a kind of totalitarian control from, from the news to, to everyday life of students. Uh, so, so essentially, it's a variation within the Democrats, just a, a variation within it that, that makes it impossible to disagree with them without involving a backlash to, to shut down people quick. Uh, I mean, if, if you know what I mean, could you address this phenomenon?
1: It very easy. Let's take a look a week ago in uh, uh, Mr. Dorham's investigation of Russia gate. I mean, just think about it. For five years, the nuclear superpower, United States is still nuclear superpower. The country of 330 uh, million people was led to believe that some absolutely preposterous steel dossier, and the Gate was a real thing. I mean, just think about it. It's, uh, it's not even ki- kindergarten level. It's something be- out. I-, I don't even know how to describe it. And now Durham d- discloses that basically this Dunshinper guy and Brookings Institution, it was completely made up. Anybody with a half brain knew that it was complete lie. But the whole media machine <coughs> was perpetuating the line. Anybody uh, got arrested among them, among media figures, among this democratic media machine? Not that, that I like GOP that much. They have their huge other problems. They also lie. But this was a lie on such a scale. I have no uh, even uh, examples or no words how to describe it. Russia gave that Trump somehow was Putin's agent well, in reality, this was basically all originating in the, within the DNC, within this whole media uh, and poly, uh, uh, PR machine. And now we know that Danchenkai and uh, Mr. Steele, who is not really a spy, I mean, the guy was in, in Russia early 90s. I mean, it's not even serious to talk about it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: about his contacts, which he, he didn't have. They just completely made up absolutely ridiculous stories. And those stories for five years have been fed massively from every single media outlet in the United States, from NPR, MSNBC, CNN, I mean, ABC, you name it. Those big time uh, anchors, they were sitting there and just, you know, with b- b- forming at the mouth, through, uh, t- 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 telling to people that this is a real deal. Russia controls our government. It, I mean, you have to be insane to believe that. Yeah. And yet yeah, it happened.
0: To get this out, though. I mean, looking down the road, you you say it's uh, it's too late for the the U.S. to reverse its course. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, and not I,
1: with this elites. No, yeah. no, not with this elites. Uh, you can uh, uh, make United States to do something, but these elites, uh, especially foreign policy elite, quote unquote, which is extremely incompetent. U.S. elite is extremely incompetent. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's my honest answer. I don't know how it will go down. It is definitely not good for the United States.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm wondering though, I mean, right now, I mean, we've got COVID-19 uh, making the situation worse and, and the people are also getting angrier. And um, I'm wondering, I mean, the things like the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated and, uh, you know, all you know, the, the, the people are getting, you know, Aroused around the, the the races and so on. I mean, looking ahead, are, are we going to see this division of, of this failing empire? I mean, is it going to ultimately become like a, a race war or a civil war, or is there a possibility that maybe we can just kind of collapse, <coughs> you know, in a more meaningful you know, without the violence?
1: I certainly would love to see. Would love to see. I'm your citizen. Well, I live here. It's my country. Okay, so the, the last thing I want to see is the real civil war and a real race war. This is the last thing anybody who have any, I mean, just normal, decent human being wants to see it. But as former military, I speak in probabilistic uh, manner. You know, war is probabilistic. Conflict is proba- probabilistic in its nature. So it's about not if this will happen or not. It's not, uh, you know, Boolean uh, um, no, yes or no. It's it's all probabilistic. Is the probability of the race war in the United States high right now? Yes, it is fairly high. How high? I don't know. Can we avoid it? We should try to do everything we can do to avoid it. But will we? I honestly don't know. It's very difficult to really measure, to gauge the uh, uh, real moods of the Americans, because basically, as I already stated, those elite organizations, those polling organizations, all those think tanks, all those media people, Uh, they do not convey and do not give actual feel about what is going on in the country because they are in the uh, business of creating an illusion. Uh, I know the tensions are very high. COVID-19 obviously didn't help. And uh, it's not only it didn't uh, help, it's actually pretty much contributed immensely to already the economic calamity which was unfolding. Mm -hmm. So... uh, at this stage, we can only hope that the United States will somehow, somehow preserve itself as the unified state and will not explode outside with the global war, which United States will lose, or with the internal hot conflict. Nobody wants to see this. I certainly don't. And, uh, but there is a the division, no doubt about it. And American... Uh, coastal cities, it's a complete uh, intellectual and economic disaster.
0: Andre, um, in the time we have left, I- I'd really like to, uh, I'd appreciate your insights on the world stage. It-, it seems as if Biden and the U.S. can't resist further encroachments on Russia, okay? I mean, over the past month, they conducted about 30 flights of strategic bombers bordering on the Russian Federation. And according to the Russian defense chief, um, you know, and and also there's a word of Russia about to enter into the Donbass of Ukraine. Senator Blinken was quoted as saying, uh, any escalatory or aggressive actions would be of great concern to the United States, unquote. So, so, so with that, Stuff developing. I, I'm wondering if I could get your uh, your really expert opinion. Is, is the U.S. and Russia on a collision course for war, or, or what r- options do do Russia and the U.S. have at this time?
1: Uh, about Ukraine, United States has zero capability to <coughs> for the escalation. Russia, however, has a complete dominance uh, in this area, and uh, basically russia will do what she, she will decide to do notwithstanding the position of the uh, united states in fact united states both afraid <clears throat> is afraid that russia will get into ukraine because the uh, united states will not be able to uh, counter it but at the same time they would love to got rid get rid of the uh, of ukraine and put this burden on russia which russia resisted for the last Seven years. That's what they uh, recently discovered, I guess, that Russians don't want Ukraine. That was a shocking uh, revelation for them. You know, they thought Russians will go and die there. Once Russia got Crimea back, nobody cared anything what Ukraine would be doing, as long as it wasn't creating the military danger. So in this uh, particular respect, the United States doesn't have the uh, ability to do anything serious except for the uh, basically create some kind of provocation and under any circumstances get Russia involved in Ukraine, which will allow the United States to proclaim, you see, these are damn Ruskies, you know, they are aggressive and there you go. And then it will start Cutting off the energy supplies and great uh, political uh, environment in Europe to such a degree that, you know, essentially Europe becomes the uh, uh, customer of the American energy, in, such as like LNG. And this is just one of the considerations. There are many other considerations. And the United States is uh, basically right now, its foreign policy is formed by a number of the ethnic and religious mafias, be that uh, 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 interest groups like APAC, uh, American-Israeli uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Committee, or diasporas, be the Polish diaspora or whoever. So it's, it's just the way it is. And... Uh, But militarily, United States, yeah, it might fly whatever it wants. Nothing new here. Been there, done that, everybody, during the Cold War 1.0. So uh, if Russia needs to uh, get involved, she will get involved. And Ukraine will cease to exist as the functional state. But neither Russians uh, nor, frankly, many people in the United States want to do that because it will... uh, Parade the United States again as the militarily impotent, especially after the catastrophe of Afghanistan. I don't think so that will look good on American record, which already is fighting for credibility, quote unquote. And uh, United States cannot fight Russia near Russia. It's period. There is no even discussion of that.
0: Wow. Mr. Mister Mr. Mardinov, I really want to thank you for uh, being my guest over the last... Uh, 45 minutes, I guess. It's It's been a, a real treat, and uh, you're, you're a very capable uh, interviewer and uh, and uh, author. Um, so yeah, thank, thanks so much for making the time. I hope you can maybe make yourself again at a later day as well.
1: Sure, sure. No problem,
0: Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, that's good. So the book is Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse, by Andrei Martyanov, who's also a uh, lab director of a Commercial Aerospace Group and the blogger on the US Naval Institute blog. That once again concludes our conversation for today. Very enjoyable interview as well, I should add, uh, based near Seattle, Washington. Next week, I'm returning once again to the question of the COVID vaccine as now there's a kids version that people are lining up to as we speak. While all the conventional experts are telling us it is safe and efficacious, there are other experts who do not and will not get the same access to the media who tell us these vaccines are definitely not safe. I will ask them about their science and their research in the show to come, and we'll also get the perspective of the more conventional medical opinion in response to those voices to try to make some sense of those findings. That starts in seven days' time. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojibwe, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca.